Thank you, Holly. We are so thankful for Holly and her husband. And there goes mom. Yeah. <laughs> All right, they're reconnected. All's well. <laughs> oh, to God be the glory. Yeah. For all the good things he's given us and uh, all the good gifts he's given us to use to his praise. And so, yeah, we're thankful for Holly and her husband Sam and their family. They're part of our church family here. And, uh, and for all those who serve in, in many ways, a children's department that's fully staffed this morning serving your kids. And, uh, and the hard work that uh, Glenn Apgar and his team has done this week to get this building done by Easter. That's been our target for the last six months. And... Uh, we made it. Saw Glenn just dive across the finish line on Friday night. You know, Friday, uh, many of you know we've been having some issues trying to get the bathrooms up and running and not coming back the wrong direction here the last few weeks, which was a serious crisis on Easter if we had that problem. And so it, literally for six hours, he was with a, you know, these plumbing eyes going underground looking at every inch of our plumbing system, right? One of which goes right underneath this thing to the back of the sound booth and out to the street. Because we were having problems, right? And we had to get this fixed by Easter. Well, come to find out, we had two big cement chunks in our plumbing line and two rags stuffed down in there. And good news is they're all gone, so we have bathrooms for all of us today, which is really, really great news. So thanks to Glenn and his team for all that work making that happen. <laughs> in a kind of a funny way, it reminded me, you know, what we got to do is have evidence. What is the problem? What is the truth? What's the reality? When we do that, then we get things fixed and get things on our lives on the right path. And that really is what we're looking at today is, is what is the truth? What is the reality of who Jesus is? It's the most important question that this world will ever ask. Who is Jesus and how we answer that is everything. And today we are in Mark chapter 16. I invite you to turn there. Uh, we've been working on the book of Mark all the way through this last uh, six months actually. And today is the last sermon, the last chapter of Mark with the grand conclusion of what Mark is trying to teach us of who Jesus is. Of course, the story of of his resurrection. So I'm going to uh, pray and uh, ask that God would attend to my words and speak to our hearts about his love and grace and power today uh, as we listen. Father, we are so grateful that we get to be here this morning. We're thankful for life. We're thankful for family that we're with and those that we love that are with us. We're thankful for uh, just the joy of singing and particularly the joy of singing songs that honor you. And then, God, uh, where would we be if we didn't have your word to hear truth? God, our, our, our eyes uh, are, are dark. We don't always see clearly, God, and we need the light of your word. And so I pray that, mercifully, God, you would open our eyes to see as we hear truth this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Mark chapter 16 lays out in two specific points, I believe. The first one is the story, the main point, that he is risen. So we'll see that in verse 1 through 8, story of the resurrection, and then 2, um, we'll look at the response that we have as people to that resurrection. Okay, so those are the two points this morning we'll look at. Uh, we'll start with, first of all, the story of the resurrection, chapter 16. I'll begin at verse 1. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. 
So the story uh, is told that two women are going to the tomb and um, they are going along to, with anticipation of actually anointing the body of Jesus with spices. They were anticipating that he would be dead, that he would be in the tomb, um, and that a couple days dead, he would be beginning to stink in a dead body, and they would anoint him with sweet-smelling perfumes and spices. That was the aim of the women. Furthermore, they were concerned mostly with, how are we going to get that big stone out of the way? That's what we see in the text. How are we going to get that that stone out of the way? That thing would be rolled down in an ancient tomb, down into a slot, big thing laid in front of the, the tomb entrance. And while they loved Jesus and they were going for devotion to him, they were concerned about even being able to get to his body. That was the concern. Never mind the Roman soldiers that would be posted there they didn't know about. They were there to guard the body. This was a, a, a serious undertaking that these women were setting out to do, and they were going to be in for quite a sight. Now, the aim, I believe, of this text, as Mark writes this, is that we would see and know and understand that Jesus is risen. That, that's what the aim is. This isn't what the women were expecting, but this is what the aim of the author as he tries to share with us. That these would be two women who would be personal witnesses to the fact that Jesus was risen. And that we'd read about this thousands of years later of this testimony of these two ladies that Jesus was not in that grave, but that he was risen from the dead. Now, it's interesting in this text, actually, that the women are the main characters. Because in the first century, this would have been laughable. Because no woman's testimony was allowed in Jewish court of law in the first century. Their word was void. You, you, if you wanted to have a testimony about something or somebody, you wouldn't invite women. In fact, pagan Celsus, an ancient pagan in the first century, said all the resurrection is is just the gossip of women. See? And, and that, was, that was the challenge. In fact, the first century kind of, the church, first century church kind of grappled with this. The women were the ones at the tomb that witnessed Jesus first and foremost. But when you think about it, it is absolutely profound. Because if you were to make up this story in the first century, the last thing you would do is put women in the story. See? And this is proof and evidence that this is not made up. This is fact. This is stuff that really happened. This authenticates that what was told by the women is absolutely true. That tomb was empty. It was proof of its authenticity. And so the story goes on in verses 5 and 6, and it says, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Okay, now, now this word for Young man also could be an angel, right? And in fact, uh, I think that's what we have here is an angel. And I want you to notice the response to these women, to this angel. They're alarmed. They're, they're stepped back, right? When we, when we think of angels, we kind of think of small little chubby, cute little creatures with little wings kind of flapping around. But I want you to know that's never, never the vi- biblical view of angels, my wife was cutting out a project. She's up there teaching right now, and, and she had the, the tomb, and the, and the tomb would roll away. And here's this cute little angel there with a smile on his face, happy, you know, kind of a cute little fellow. I thought, Mary, your angel's wrong, right? <laughs> you need a big, scary dude there, right? But then I thought, well, that's for first graders, so maybe we don't want to real scare the kids, you know, with a big angel. But nevertheless, these angels were, were strong and mighty and, and big, and, and it was alarming to them. 
And they were dazzling, it says, in their appearance. And they come and they make this statement. It says, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Come on, look for yourselves. See that this tomb is empty. Furthermore, it goes on, he says, But go now and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And so the women and the disciples make their way to Galilee and and other gospels tell us that they encounter Jesus and see him, the risen Christ, that he indeed is risen. And that is the testimony of the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us that he appeared to the ladies, then he appeared to the disciples, and then he appeared to literally hundreds of followers, that Jesus was risen. And you could see that in his physical appearance to people. Furthermore, the grave was empty, and uh, in the first century, the Jews and the Romans both would have loved to have presented a dead body of Jesus and, and calmed the situation, but they couldn't because it wasn't there. It wasn't available. And so history lays out for us clearly that, that Jesus was risen. He was not dead, but he was alive. And that is the testimony of the scriptures um, in these verses. Now, I want you to see uh, the reaction of the women, uh, particularly in verse 8. I'll read this for you. It says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They weren't expecting to find an empty tomb, but that is what they found. And the reality of that and the declaration of the angel that he is risen actually shook them to their core. Because, see, the implications of this are absolutely huge. Whether Jesus is dead or whether he is risen has everything to do with how you and I should live our lives today. This is the question, who is Jesus and is he alive? And these women understood clearly that the implications of Jesus being risen had profound and life-shaking and changing implications for their lives. See, the Bible has been telling us in the book of Mark all the way along that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, as Peter testified in Mark 8 many weeks ago, that He is God's unique, only begotten Son, that He is the Messiah, the one who would be the suffering servant, who would die for our sins, that He is the eternal God who made the heavens along with the Father and is from everlasting to everlasting with Him. This is Jesus as proclaimed in Mark, and now the resurrection testifies that all of that is true. Romans 1.4 The Scriptures and Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. See, And so now they face this reality and, and fear, it says, overcomes them because if Jesus is risen, He is who He said He is and He is Lord and therefore I owe my life to Him. Furthermore, if Jesus is risen, He is the judge who will come and, and He will be the one to whom I give an account for everything in my life. See, fear has grabbed them, but it's even more than that because sometimes fear, while it means fright, it also means to stand in awe of. And so here is Jesus risen and now the beauty of this person that would be king 
maker of the heavens and come down and live and die? And now rise to prove that he, all, he was all he claimed to be? You stand back, it knocks us back and go, oh my, now I am caught by something more beautiful than I can imagine that a God would love me that much that he would come and die and hang on a cross. King Jesus, hanging on a cross for my sin, how can that be? And so they perceived the beauty of his power, his love that he would come and die and his holiness and justice that he would rise and declare us innocent who believe in him. It was a powerful scene. It's a little bit alike, I think, what we experience in the state of Utah, actually, this beautiful state that we live in, and uh, the amazing scenery and, and places you can go and just look up hundreds of feet at the bottom, uh, cliffs that rise up out of the ground or get to the top of them, more frighteningly, and, and, and look down. And you, you step back from a distance and you're in awe and then you get up, up close and you get frightened, right? I was playing golf in St. George here a week ago and there was one course that we were playing and, and one of the holes... Had a, had a 400 foot cliff drop off at the edge of the fairway on one side. And they wouldn't let you drive your cart out there, right? Because the insurance companies wouldn't insure them if you did. And so, you understand that. And so, so you, but you, you step back and you look at the beauty of, of that hole that's out in front of you. And then you start to, your ball goes off over there and you, and you start to tremble as you get close to the edge because you don't want to fall off the side. See, the, 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 both the beauty and the fear that goes with something so awesome. And that's what they were experiencing with, with Jesus amazing beauty and yet frightful in his power and his judgments. And so here they are now face to face with the reality of who Jesus is and his resurrection from the dead. Now, uh, that obviously has huge implications for our lives. If this is true, if this is a reality, right? if we look at this and, and hear the testimony of the scriptures and believe, that has life-changing implications for every one of us this morning. So let's talk a little bit about those. Now, we come to verses 9 through 20. And um, it is Easter Sunday, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this first little segment, but I think we should say something here because I think there's something informative for all of us. Um, if you notice verses 9 to 20, you will see that there are double parentheses brackets at the front end of 9 and at the end of 20. And those are there because in virtually every scholar's mind, these verses were added later to the scriptures and aren't a part of the very original writings of the book of Mark. Okay? And it's likely that the early church added these to sort of tie up what they thought was needed to bring Mark to a clearer summary and they were added to our, our scriptures. And we have them, but we also know that they were added later. And everybody pretty much agrees on this. And it could be a little disconcerting, um, except that I want to explain this to you so that um, uh, none of us are really uh, surprised by what we are seeing and studying here this morning. Let me begin by saying that 99%, 99% of all the ancient manuscripts that we have, which are over 5,000, by the way, in uh, today, and we'll find them more by the year, um, 99% of what they say are in complete agreement. Okay? There is a 1% in which there is some disagreement. Some might have this, some might have that, some might have a word here and a word there. There is a 1% that is different. 
And that's what we have here in verses 9 to 20. But here's what's important to know. First of all, 99% are in agreement. And of the 1% that there is not complete agreement, there is nothing in those verses that changes anything that amounts to anything. There's nothing new here. There's nothing added here. There's nothing subtracted here. There's no change in theology here. This is all completely consistent with all the other scriptures. And that's true of all of the 1% that has some differing pieces. It doesn't change anything of any nature at all in the complete and whole message of the Bible. And that you got to know. Okay, So what we have is entirely reliable, entirely sufficient, and entirely true. And we can base our lives on it even with that 1% that has some differences because they really don't add up to anything that matters. Okay? That's important to see. That's why, by the way, we teach the Bible. There's no other book authenticated like this one. Even in its differences, we can look at all of them, we know where they're at, and we can see it does not even change one little bit, the message. It's an amazing, amazing book. God's Word to us. Now, this little section (coughs) speaks to us about the response of people to Jesus' resurrection. Look at verses 9 through 14. It says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. They didn't believe at first. Verse 12. After these things, he appeared to another in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And then those two went back and told the rest of the disciples. But they didn't believe them either. And afterward, now, Jesus appears to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at a table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief. And hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Okay, so this is the struggle, and it's the struggle of everybody in this room this morning, is will we believe? Will we put our faith in Jesus? Will we believe he is risen? That's the battle that we all face. Will we live our life because of personal faith in Jesus for him, because of who he is? And if he's risen, he is who he said he was. That's the battle. And the gospel that we teach, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5, says this is the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead the third day. That is the gospel. And how we respond to that gospel determines whether or not we are saved and made right with God. This is the most important question in all the universe. Listen to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Here's what it says you've got to do to be saved. To be rescued from your sin. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So two things are required of us if we are to get ourselves right with God. One is to believe he's risen. And if he's risen, then we have to say, all right, you are who you say you are. You are Lord. I make you Lord of my life. I give my life to you. Okay, That saves you. Jesus, you're risen, and you're Lord, I'm yours. And the Bible says you do that, and you're saved. Okay? That's why this resurrection is so incredibly important, because the gospel is bound up in it. Now, we need to understand, especially in this American culture, that this this believing in Jesus, which the Bible says like 90 or 100 times we're saved by faith, 
is more than just an intellectual assent. It's more than just agreeing that Jesus is risen. I mean, I think most of Americans, I think, still would say they believe Jesus is risen, right? But this is, is more than that. It's an actual entrusting of your life to him. It's saying with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. It's a little bit like this stool. I often use this illustration that I can look at that and say, okay, I believe that's a stool and I believe that will hold me if I sit on it, okay? But that's not faith. That's a type of faith, but it's not a saving faith. Saving faith says, okay, I look at that stool, I believe it will hold me, and then I take this risk in front of all the world to sit down on this thing, right? And we can all breathe a sigh of relief that actually held me, right? And that's what saving faith is. It's resting your life in Jesus' hands and in his arms and trusting in what he did for you on the cross to pay for your sins, see? That's saving faith. And that's what this Bible is inviting us to, a, a personal trust in Jesus and who he is, giving your life um, to him. Now, I might also add that it is faith, right? Which means you can't add it up like an equation and come to this absolute certainty of one plus one equals two. There is this gap in which it can't be put into a test tube and proven right in front of you. There is a leap and a jump of faith in belief in Jesus. And um, I, I often liken it to a canyon, maybe two plateaus and then a deep canyon between the two. And I'm going to try to build a bridge across from unbelief to belief. And I, I'm, I'm starting to think about Okay, here's what the scriptures say. Jesus is alive and I read the story and I read the testimony of the women and that, that helps me. And then I think about the historical setting, how they would love to have found the dead body of Jesus but couldn't find it. They surely would have shown it if they had and, they, and nobody ever did. And then I hear the testimony of other people and how Jesus has changed their life. I can begin to build a pretty solid bridge across that canyon from unbelief to belief. But I can't get all the way across with facts that just cinch it up and, and seal it for me. I still have to, at the end of the day, go, it makes sense. It's a reasonable belief. But I'm going to take the last jump of faith. The bridge doesn't make it all the way across. I still have to jump and go, there's enough here to say, Jesus is alive. Now I'm going to trust him. I give you my life. Okay, that's the leap of faith. And that's what the Bible is inviting us to, to look at the evidence, to see that there is so much that would say, it makes sense to believe in Jesus and then to just trust. Just put your faith. Sit down on the stool. See what happens, right? I promise you, if you do that with Jesus, he will hold you up. You will not regret it. And that's the invitation uh, of the scriptures. Now, one might ask the question, well, it seems simple. It seems obvious. The promises are amazing. Of eternal life when you believe. You get to walk with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords all your days. Why would not everybody do that? See? And the Bible gives us the answer to that. And it says the reason people don't come to Jesus is because of their own sin. See? They don't want to turn from their wicked ways. They don't want to turn from their own life. They don't want to give up their selfish behavior. They don't want to give their life to Jesus. And so they don't. See? That's the, the darkness of, of our ability to see. Clearly, that's our own sin that actually blinds us and we all have to face this problem right and i was I, three months ago i was watching uh, jimmy kimmel and he was it was christmas time and he was interviewing uh, a little girl maybe you saw this 
whether she was naughty or nice and whether or not she should get presents from Santa. Remember this? If you saw this, it was really cute. And, and so she's all dressed up in a cute little dress and she's sitting there and Jimmy Kimmel's dressed up like an elf. And he's saying to her, have you been naughty or have you been nice? And do you think Santa should come to your house and give you gifts or not? And uh, she said, well, I've been really, really good. I'm a really, really good girl, right? I, I'm be good. Santa should come to my house. And, and Jimmy says, well, it says here that you've been a little bossy on the playground. Is that true? <laughs> And she goes, just a little tiny bit. I've been a little tiny bit bossy. <laughs> it says here that you've been mean to somebody. Oh, only one girl I've been mean to, and everybody's mean to her. <laughs> so cute, right? But so profound, right? Even the sweetest little people amongst us have this problem called sin, Right? And then the more serious writers tell us, and remind us, I was reading John Owen this week, who was a very serious writer from the 17th century. He said, every tiny little seed of sin has the potential of taking you to a complete abandonment of God. Ooh, now that's big adult language now, right? And I think we all, we all know this, don't we? That our little half steps down a path of, of disobedience in the little widest little ways, only a little bit, has the potential to take us to a place where we abandon God entirely in our hearts and our lives. That's the danger of sin, and that's why Jesus came to die, to actually put in us a new nature uh, that would make us a different people by his grace and not by our own doing. And so the Bible says that, uh, and it's, the, it's the, been the theme of the book of Mark, too, from the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 15 says you've got to believe and you've got to repent. You've got to turn. You've got to say, okay, Jesus, I'm putting you at the center of my life. You are Lord, right? You declared yourself Lord by the resurrection from the dead and I put you at the center. John chapter 6 tells us that Jesus said to his disciples, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be mine. That's kind of a crazy, hard way to understand, way of saying, I've got to be your life. You've got to find in me your spiritual life. You give me everything. And it says most of the disciples left him at that point. That was too much, see? But that's what Jesus is saying. Put him at the center. That's what, the, that's what it means to follow him. To say, you are my life, Jesus. I will live for you. And Paul, writing in Philippians 1, said it this way. He said, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. I mean, that's just a, just a packed little sentence there. But really what Paul is inviting us to do is, is think about this question. How can I live my life in such a way that it will be full, it'll be satisfying, it'll be purposeful, it'll be meaningful, it'll amount to something, and then when I die, it's gain. How do I answer that question? I mean, that's a question we all ought to answer. How do I live my life in such a way that it is full and meaningful and purposeful and satisfying, and then when I die, it gets even better? And the only way you can answer that question is to put at the end of this sentence, for me to live is Christ. Because when Christ is at the center, you get to walk with the King of Kings. And it says that his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then when you die, if Jesus is the center of your life, you just get more of him. <laughs> you see? And by the way, if G the, this is only true because if there's a resurrection, right? 
And Paul even says it in 1 Corinthians 15 in the resurrection chapter. He says, if Christ is not risen, if he's not risen, if you don't believe he's risen, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Okay? So if, if you don't believe Jesus is risen, then don't do this. Don't come back here. Live it up. Party. Go crazy. Seek as much immediate pleasure as you can right now if Christ is not risen. But if he is, the best way to live is to give it to him. and Walk with him as king of your life. Now look at Every one of us are tempted to put something at the end of that little sentence. For me to live is blank. Everybody's going to put something in that space. Whether it's money or it's reputation, romance, whatever. So, I'll put something in there. But here's the deal. Whatever you put in there, you become a slave to that thing. It owns you because your life is bound up in it. Right? If it's money, for me to live is money, then you become a slave to making money. And it will drive you into the ground. Sometimes, here's what I put in there. For me to live is being a perfect pastor, right? Which is foolish, right? Because if I start out at the beginning of my week on Monday, by the end of an hour, first hour, I'm done with that already. I've messed that up bad. And you all know that. I've been around me, right? It's foolish. But if I make that as my, for me to live as being a perfect pastor, I will go home today unhappy, miserable, groaning, because I have failed so many times already. You see, it owns me. I become a slave to it. Whatever you put there, you are a slave to it, unless you put Jesus there, and he sets you free. Because you are made right by his grace. And he forgives you, and you are given his righteousness, and you are set on a course by his power, his resurrection power of living in his strength to serve and walk alongside the guy that created the universe. So as Robert would say, here's your wild and crazy idea. How about putting Jesus in that spot? Huh? Don't you think? Does it make sense? Jesus belongs there. That's what we were made for. Now, this chapter wraps up. <clears throat> I'll close with this. <clears throat> By pointing us to <clears throat> the adventure of living for Jesus. Once they'd seen he was risen... Then they believed, and then he gives them what some call the Great Commission. It's more spelled out more carefully in Matthew and the other gospel, but he says, Then he said to them, Now go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And he goes on to describe the, the, the crazy and wild adventure it is to follow Jesus and all the excitement that goes with that. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things you can give your life to, but I think everything we give our lives to ends up kind of boring eventually unless you give it to Jesus. And, and, and I have found this. I've been living for him for 40 years. Um, and it's been a lot of things, but it's never been boring. Never been boring. It is the greatest adventure. Sometimes it's like the women at the tomb. I'm, I'm afraid and I'm astonished and I'm trembling. I had plenty of that. Those of you who walked alongside me even here the last eight years know there's times like that, but it's never boring. It is the adventure of a life. It is worth doing. Because you get to walk with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords.
many of you today, when you go home with children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren, you will have an Easter egg hunt, and uh, you'll hide little chocolate eggs um, through your yard or through your house, and little children will go and, and find them, and uh, it's fun, and it's exciting. And if you're three, four, five, six, seven, eight, it's really exciting to go hunt for little chocolate Easter eggs. But then we grow up into adults, and it is just a little bit boring to hunt for chocolate Easter eggs. At least for most of you. I can see some of you are like, I can see, no, 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 I want those chocolate Easter eggs. Right. But it gets a little boring. So what we've done with our kids, we start putting money in the eggs and hide them. Then, then, then keeps the excitement up, right? Keeps our adult children children, right? So. But I kind of picture us Americans sort of on this grand Easter egg hunt. Band, you can come on up. This grand Easter egg hunt, we're trying to find something that'll give us excitement, something that will satisfy our hearts, something that will thrill us. And and I'm asking you, what, what has to be in those eggs for you to be happy? What has to be in those eggs to be satisfied? And it keeps changing for us. One year after another, after another, one thing we go, we pursue it for a while, we hunt it down, and it doesn't do it. And until we come to the place where Jesus is our pursuit, our hearts will not settle. Our hearts will not be content. Because Jesus was meant to be the pursuit of our lives. And so this text invites us this morning to see him for who he is and to face the demands that puts on our hearts and to say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you. I will give my life to you. Everything else won't do it. Nothing else will satisfy. It's like a grand Easter egg hunt that just gets boring eventually. And then a question that's commonly asked, I think, is, well, I've already made way too many mistakes, done too much wrong. I can never be accepted by a holy God. I'm afraid to even look face to face into his loving eyes. But that's why Peter is in this story. Peter shows up in this text. He's the last guy with his name named. Because he's the guy that screwed up the most. <laughs> and he says, now make sure Peter hears, get, meet me in Galilee, he'll see me. And then I'm going to send him out on a life like he's never seen. And when you see the next story and the next chapter in Peter's life, he preaches the greatest sermons that have ever been preached in the history of the world in Acts chapter 2. Here was a man that had nothing to offer Jesus but his failures, his denial of him just three days earlier, time and time again. No, I don't know that man. And now Jesus said, I want him to come and meet me and see me because I'm going to fill him up with my spirit and with the power of the resurrection that he will go and change lives for my kingdom's sake. And that is the truth for every one of us. None of us bring some great super talent and ability but we bring ourselves. That's what Jesus asks of us. Just come as you are. Just bring yourself and I will fill you with my spirit and you will walk in the power of the resurrection and you will live a life of an adventure that you will not find anywhere else in this world. Serve me. I am the Lord. I'm the risen Christ. Will you do it today? That's the question. What will you do with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have shown us in your word that Jesus is the risen Christ. Oh God, don't let us leave this morning without saying to you, I will follow you. Thank you for dying for me. Oh God, let our hearts one more time surrender to you. You are Lord of all, the amazing God.
Jesus, you are risen. And we praise your name. Amen.